In recent weeks, I've read a couple of political books, one dealing with the events of the last three years, and then the other one dealing with the events of the, the 1980s and the early 90s. And I was thinking, regardless of political party or decade, regardless of the gender of the politician or the race or the age, there's a common denominator that is, that is, is woven through all of the political scene. It's strategizing towards victory. And whether it's seeking victory in an election or victory for a piece of legislation, seeking victory for self or for an individual that is being supported that you're maybe campaigning for, the goal is the same. It's victory. History looks back on both the successful and the unsuccessful strategies in politics, in athletics, in military conflicts, all of them vying for the same thing, victory. Our text this morning, Joshua chapter 6, looks back at what must be one of the oddest military strategies in history, and it yielded such a phenomenal result. Our text reveals to us how our promise-keeping God was victorious for his children. So if you've not yet located Joshua chapter 6, would you please do so at this point. If you don't have a copy of the Bible with you, you can find one in the pew there in front of you, and it's page 170 on that copy. And if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, you're welcome to take that copy with you. Joshua is the sixth book of the Christian Old Testament, and it's named after the military leader of the nation of Israel. Joshua has already been identified several times throughout this book that carries his name as the son of Nun. And some of you can't believe that we've made it all the way to chapter 6 without me making some horribly corny joke about Joshua being the son of Nun. Well, I'll let you know that it has taken much self-restraint from this son of two. Uh. We're journeying through the book of at a fairly quick pace. This is our eighth study in six chapters. Our first study kind of outlined for us the book, and today it outlined uh, four sections of the book, and today we're moving from section one into section two. So the first five chapters, we're talking about entering into the promised land, and then chapters six through 12 talk about fighting for the promised land. So that's where we're moving into now. We're moving from entering, from Israel entering into the promised land to the section of Israel fighting for the promised land, and then chapters 13 through 21 talk about distributing the promised land, and the final few chapters some admonishments about the promised land. But it's not until we get all the way to chapter 6 that we actually get some military action. And it's in this chapter that presents the narrative of the city of Jericho falling to Jehovah God and his chosen nation. Let me give you a quick rabbit trail, just a quick reminder as you read Old Testament narratives. We should be careful to guard against simply moralizing the text of Old Testament narratives, or pointing to the wrong hero of the story. For instance, Dare to be a Daniel makes for a nice children's song, but the Bible is about God. The hero of Joshua 6 is not the human military leader. The hero is Jehovah God. If you're not yet a, a Christian, watch as we walk through Joshua 6. Watch for how God wins. Consider how God overrules all individuals. 
Christian, when you see the victory of God for you, as we will be pointed to in Joshua chapter 6, when you remember that Jesus Christ has triumphed in your place, how do you respond? A question for you as we consider the text this morning. If you're taking notes, we'll gather our thoughts around four revelations, four aspects that are revealed about God through his victory. First of all, we see that God's victory reveals his unique presence. God's victory reveals his unique presence. Now you might be thinking, what? Again with the presence of God? Again with the same theme of the presence of God? Yes. It's an oft-repeated theme that we've seen through our study in Joshua. God had told Joshua that he would be with him wherever he went in the promised land. God had given his word that he would be continually wherever the soles of their feet had, would trod. When God repeats something so often, my friends, it is important that we would be wise to pay attention and to glean what is divinely emphasized for us. I'm going to read the first 16 verses, and as I read from Joshua chapter 6, please listen for uh, in, uh, how God's presence is inferred from the text or implied from the text, specifically as it refers to to the, to the Ark of the Covenant. Follow along as I read from Joshua chapter 6. This is God's word. Now Jericho was straightly shut up because the children of Israel, because of the children of Israel, none went out and none came in. And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given into thine hand Jericho, and the king thereof, and the mighty men of valor. And ye shall compass the city, all ye men of war, and go round about the city once. This ye shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns. And the seventh day you shall compass the city seven times. And the priests shall blow the, with the trumpets. And it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat. And the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. And Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said unto them, Take up the Ark of the Covenants, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said unto the people, Pass on, and compass the city, and let him that is armed pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And it came to pass, when Joshua had spoken unto the people, that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of the ram's horns passed on before the Lord, and blew with the trumpets. And the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. And the armed men went, went before the priest that blew with the trumpets. And the rearward came after the ark, the priest going on and blowing with the trumpets. And Joshua had commanded his people, saying, Ye shall not shout, nor make any noise with your voice, neither your mouth, until the day I bid you shout. Then you shall shout. So the ark of the Lord compass the city going about its once and they came into the camp and lodged in the camp and Joshua rose early in the morning and the priest took up the ark of the Lord and the seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets and the armed men went before them but the rearward came after the ark of the Lord the priest going on and blowing with the trumpets and the second day they compassed the city once and returned into the camp so they did six days. And it came to pass on the seventh day 
that they rose early about the dawning of the day and compassed the city after the same manner seven times. Early on that day they compassed the city seven times. And it came to pass at the seventh time when the priests blew with the trumpets, Joshua said unto the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. There's this little cycle that takes place throughout the book of Joshua. God gives a command to Joshua. Joshua relays the command to the people, and the people obey the command that has been given to them from Joshua, from God. We see that cycle being played out as they come to the city of Jericho to conquer it. God had told Joshua to have the Ark of the Covenant that was to circle the city. This chapter refers to the Ark of the Covenant no less than ten times. Now, a quick reminder, the Ark of the Covenant was more than just a box. The Ark of the Covenant literally symbolized God's presence, His unique presence with them. It spoke of the holiness of God. It spoke to the mercy of God. I heard, I heard somebody else say it this way. The Ark of the Covenant was an object to remind Israel who God was, that He was holy and merciful. It was an object to remind Israel who God was. It was to remind them who they were, that they were His, that He had claimed them. And thirdly, it was to remind them where He was. He was with them. He hadn't left them. He hadn't forsaken them. And this is what they, they carried into battle, to be reminded that God was with them in this battle. And Israel went into this battle with the presence of God. Right in the thick of things was, was God. God was with them. Has God not made the same promise to each of us? He commissioned us to go into all the world and teach all nations, to make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to teach them to observe all things whatsoever He has commanded us, and lo, He is with us even unto the end of the world. Isaiah chapter 43 says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon you. Christian, because God promises His continual presence with us, we can say with the psalmist, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? God's continual presence his unique presence, it urges us towards faithful obedience. Because we know that God is near, we desire to follow His instructions. God's presence encourages us toward a day-by-day -day plodding of the Christian pilgrimage, continuing in the, in the, in the responsibilities and in the instructions that He has given us to follow in His Word. When you are faced with trials on every side, take heart. God is present with you. The outcome is already secure God has already taken care of the problem, so proceed with great confidence. He already knows how it's going to turn out, so rest in His presence with you as you walk through those valleys in this life. Take hope in the presence of your God. Take courage. Do not be afraid, for your God is with you. He fought for Israel. He fights for you. If God be for us, who can be against us? God's victory reveals His unique presence. Secondly, God's victory reveals His unmatched power. Now there's some more instructions that are given in verses 17 through 19 that we're going to come back to in just a moment. But for now, let's jump to, to verse number 20 and consider this idea that God's victory reveals His unmatched power. 
So, God, so Joshua told the people to shout in verse 16. In verse 20 it says, And the people shouted when the, pe- when the priest blew with the trumpets. And it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the walls fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight in before him, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and ass, with the edge of the sword. Can you imagine? Six chapters worth of preparation for entering into this land. Six days of preparation for Jericho as they marched around this. And 40 years of anticipation of what was going to come, of coming into the promised land that God had had, had given to them so many years ago. All of this explanation of how the nation was to take the city of Jericho, all the way through the first 16 verses, all of this explanation of what the strategy was going to be for Israel to, to take this city of Jericho. And then in one and a half verses, God gives the city over to Israel. It speaks to the divine, unmatched power. The unmatched power of God. The God who spoke our world into existence. The God who upholds the creation by the power of His Word. The God who can, as we sang this morning, fall an enemy with one single word. This God brought down the walls of a city. My friend, this wasn't some kind of magic that happened centuries ago. This isn't some kind of Old Testament parable that we're supposed to to learn about falling walls and those represent something else and we can conquer any Jericho in our life. This This was an actual event where walls of a city fell down flat. There are archaeological studies that give evidence that this actually happened. It's the unmatched power of God. One of the things that we have done over the years at our house is uh, get in some, some wrestling matches, and we wrestle a good bit, and I can take down the kids pretty well because um, I've always been bigger and stronger. But one day, uh, I'm not, I might be bigger. I don't know. We'll see how the diets go, but I might not always be stronger. And one day, not yet, don't get any ideas. One day, my son's going to be able to take me down. Because my strength is going to diminish and his is going to be on the rise. Friends, God's power has not lessened since the days of Jericho. God's power is the same today as it was when he did speak the world into existence. It's the same today as when the walls of Jericho fell down flat. God remains all-powerful. He can take care of any problem in your life. Tozer put it this way, God who has all the power there is can make a sun and a star and a galaxy as easily as he can lift a robin off of its nest. God can do anything as easily as he can do anything else. That's the power of our God. Believe, trust the ability of God's power to care, to take care of whatever you face on this day. That event, that responsibility, that task, I think that there is no humanly way to accomplish. Give it to the God of the impossible. Walk by faith and not by sight. See the power. Know, trust the power of your God. We sang it this morning. Your soul can be still. You can be at peace precisely because the Lord is on your side. But this power 
that's displayed in Joshua 6 is not just for Christians to, to note. There's also a warning for unbelievers that comes from Joshua chapter 6 regarding God's power. When you read and when you hear of the Jericho account, don't miss the power of God to judge sin. You see, this wasn't just power for Israel's victory. This was a power to judge the sin of the inhabitants of the promised land. Everything was utterly destroyed, verse 21 tells us. Now let's go backwards and look at verses 17 through 19. Joshua told the people, And the city shall be accursed, even it and all that are therein to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all that are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that were sent. And ye, and, and ye in any wise, keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest ye make yourselves accursed, when ye take of the accursed thing, and make the camp of Israel accursed, and trouble it. But all the silver, and the gold, and the vessels of brass and iron are consecrated unto the Lord, and they shall come into the treasury of the Lord. The city was accursed. It was devoted to destruction. Jericho was an evil city that God was raining down His judgment on. God's wrath was being poured out on a city. His judgment was coming to a city because of their sin. Friends, you should, be, you should understand this. That the Bible is crystal clear. The Bible leaves us no doubt that every human being is a sinner and that God will judge sin. The judgment, the payment for sin is death. And the Bible speaks very clearly about those who do not repent, who do not turn away from their sin. If you don't repent, the Bible tells us that you will face judgments, the judgment of God in hell for all of eternity. Jericho was destroyed because of their sin. And God will give the same punishment of destruction to all who refuse to turn away from their sin. Today, right now in this service, I issue you an invitation. If you have not yet turned from sin, I encourage you, I implore you to see that judgment is coming and turn to the one who is able to rescue you from that impending God's victory reve reveals His unique presence with us. And God's victory reveals His unmatched power. But notice thirdly that God's victory reveals His undeserved mercy. Jump down to verse 22 now. The walls had fallen flat, and jo but Joshua had said unto the two men that had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house and bring out thence the woman, and all that she has, as you swear unto her. And the young men that were spies went in and brought out Rahab, and her father, and her mother, and her brethren, and all that she had. And they brought out all her kindred, and left them without the camp of Israel. Now this takes us back to Joshua chapter 2 and the narrative about uh, of the harlots named Rahab. Here in Joshua 6, we see a promise-keeping God delivering on his promise to save Rahab. It was a display of mercy to this harlot and to her family in the presence. But actually, there had been mercy for a long time to the ancestors of these, of these, these inhabitants of the promised land. Because you remember that God had told Abraham 
many years ago, hundreds of years ago, that this land was going to be theirs. But he also told them this about the inhabitants of the land from Genesis chapter 15, verse number 16. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Here it is. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. It had not reached the extent that God was going to allow their sin, their iniquity to reach back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. So Jehovah had been showing patience to the inhabitants of that, of that promised land of Canaan during Abram's day. You see, it wasn't as if God rained down his judgment on Jericho after a single screw-up. No. God didn't rain down judgment on Jericho even after an entire generation of rebellion. God had waited more than 400 years before he judged Jericho. That is undeserved mercy for those who were there. God was withholding his judgment on that city. He was giving them opportunity to cease their evil. If you struggle, if you ponder that question, you struggle with God's instruction to Israel to wipe out an entire city, be reminded that there were four centuries of mercy. God is more merciful than we often realize. In fact, sometimes God is so merciful that we begin to believe that He is being too merciful. We get frustrated that He doesn't obliterate those who promote rampant evil. We wonder why He allows nations to continue in their ways of rebellion through abortion or, or, or promoting uh, lifestyles like homosexuality or other blatant sins in our culture. So one of the questions that confronts us is this. Why does God allow such deliberate evil to continue? Perhaps one answer is that he is giving time for sinners to repent and to believe. He is withholding judgments in order that they will turn to him. Christian, rejoice in God's mercy to you. Rejoice in the new mercies of every morning. Rejoice that God didn't wipe you off the face of the map for all of your rebellion against Him. And can I encourage us all to practice mercy. Practice mercy in our own Christian life. Practice mercy in the relationships that God has given to you. Practice mercy in your marriage. Practice mercy in your own parenting. God is a merciful God. He saved here, the, the most unlikely person in the city. God is slow to anger. He's quick to mercy. Rahab so feared, Rahab so feared Jehovah's threat that she fled to his mercy. This pagan Gentile and her family are now surrounded by broken walls and the chosen people of God. God is not quick to judge. He is merciful. He is patient. He is kind. God mercifully withheld his judgments from Rahab the harlot. What he did for Rahab, he can do for you. You see, Joshua chapter 6 is not chiefly about Joshua or Rahab. It's, it's not primarily about the obedience of the Israelites. Joshua 6 is about the fact that God hated sin, and he offered deliverance to sinners. Joshua 6 points us to the cross where God did both. He both hated sin and he offered deliverance to sinners. 
God made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. God's victory reveals His unique presence. God's victory reveals His unmatched power. God's victory reveals His undeserved mercy. And fourthly, God's victory reveals His ultimate glory. Look at verse 24. And they burned the city with fire, and all that was therein, only the silver and the gold and the vessels of brass and of iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua saved Rahab the harlot alive, and her father's household and all that she had, and she dwelleth in Israel even to this day, because she hid the messengers which Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And Joshua adjured them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord that rises up and builds the city of Jericho. He shall lay the foundation thereof in his firstborn, and his youngest son shall be set up the gates of it. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was noised throughout all the country. As God's strategy unfolded, it was clear that he was using unconventional methods to provide victory. The walls of Jericho were high. Military advisors may have suggested to Joshua to use siege ramps, or some may have suggested starving the city out since it was all sealed up. But instead, each day for six days, Israel walked in silence around the watching city. And then on the seventh day, they repeated this exercise seven times. Now, over the last several weeks in preparing and looking forward to Joshua chapter 6, I gave serious consideration to, at this point in the sermon, everybody standing up and walking out that door and marching around this building and coming back in the back of the auditorium and having a seat and finishing the rest of the message. Just in order for us to think about how strange it would have been. Have you ever been in a sermon like that? I don't think I have. It would have been strange for us to, to have gone through that practice. We're not doing it. Anybody that's about to panic can relax. Think about how strange it was for Israel to march around a city. Verse 10 tells us that nobody even spoke. They were instructed not to make noise with their mouths. Only the sound of the ram's horn was blown by the, that was blown by the priests. Can you imagine trying to keep several million people quiet? Can you imagine, as the, as the people of Jericho looked down over those walls, jeering at the Israelites, mocking them for this weak military strategy of walking around a city? Can you imagine trying to keep your mouth shut while somebody was jeering you, while somebody was mocking you as you walked around a city? Silence before God. It's a discipline that we should practice. It seems like Joshua chapter 6 is teaching us that there is a place and a time to be quiet before the Lord after you've poured your heart out to Him to be still and to know that He is God. F.B. Meyer said it this way, Restraint of the tongue is the last lesson learned by God's children. You see, we often pour out our heart to God, but sometimes we're using prayer as a time to advise God on how life should unfold in the coming days or weeks or things that should take place in our life. 
instead of being silent before God. You take time to be still. You take time to be quiet before God, to listen to Him speak to you through His Word, to pour your, out, pour your heart out in prayer, and then just to be quiet, to sense His leading in your life. Israel's silence and Israel's simple obedience points us to the glory of God. Israel completed six days, and then on the seventh time around, on that seventh day when the city was entirely surrounded by the Jewish armies, Joshua commanded the people, shout! So the Lord has given you the city. The people did shout. And did you notice from verse 2 when our first read through that the Lord had told Joshua that he had already given the city of Jericho to Joshua and to Israel. It was past tense before they even broke camp on the first trip around the city. That doesn't take away from the excitement of the victory. Rather, it points to the glory of the victor, Jesus Christ. You see, Israel wasn't qualified to defeat Jericho. Humanly speaking, defeating Jericho was, wasn't just a challenging feat. It was an impossible feat. Israel had, had no shot of penetrating the fortified walls of Jericho. The Israelites were shepherds. They had tools with them that were used to, guard, to, to guide the sheep and to, to guide cattle. They were not armed with high-powered weapons of warfare. The time of Jericho's invasion was, was, was post-harvest time for Jericho. So basically, the city had brought their crops in, closed the city gates, and they were ready to hibernate for a season. Unarmed men, massive city walls, no weaponry, and a closed-up, well-stocked city. You think Israel was just a little bit overwhelmed at that point? You think they just felt a little bit unqualified to conquer the city? It was clear. There would be no mistake. If this city fell, if this city was given over to Israelites, if this city was defeated, it would not be by the skills of Israel, but it would be by the God of Israel. So God had Israel circle the city in order that Israel would see that they would recognize how impossible their victory would be in their own strength. Friends, God would get glory for this victory. Israel spends three days at the Jordan River while it is at flood stage. Israel sees the impossibility of crossing that body of water. Israel spends six days marching around the city walls that must have looked like the walls stretched to the heavens. Israel sees the impossibility of of penetrating those walls. God was reminding His children. God was gracing His loved ones, His dear children, with this reminder that they didn't have a shot at conquering the city by themselves, that He was going to have to do the work for them. One pastor put it this way. God brings people to brokenness and to despair to emphasize His power and that he would receive glory. Do you feel that you have been brought to a point of brokenness? Do you feel that you have been brought, in, have been brought to a point of despair? God often does this in order that he may emphasize his own power in the situation, and that he would receive the glory, so that we can say, God, I cannot do this. I cannot handle this. It's going to have to be you alive in me, your power, your glory. It is possible that God has brought you to that point 
of brokenness and despair in order that he will receive glory through that brokenness and despair. Sometimes God bypasses his people's activities to enhance his own glory. We have the tendency to obscure God's glory ourselves, don't we? We have the tendency to obscure God's glory, to steal his praise. So he sets our contributions aside so that that we see it as all of him, as all of his work. And in Joshua chapter 6, we see that being played out. If it were produced, if this story was produced in Hollywood, the movie would focus on the assault of the city, the combat, the falling walls. There would be long scenes of the battle. But instead, this production by a holy God focuses our attention back to his power and to his Political campaigns, athletic endeavors, military conflicts reveal a wide gamut of strategies towards this goal of victory. Joshua 6 reveals the unique, the unmatched, the undeserved, and the ultimate strategy of God to gain victory. His presence, His power, His mercy, and His glory. Doesn't that sound a little bit familiar? Is not this what we have seen in our own life via the good news of Jesus Christ? The hill of Golgotha was in a way just like Jericho where God's judgment was poured out. Ephesians 2 tells us that God made us alive together in Christ. Romans 1 tells us the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We couldn't do it ourselves. God had to supersede our rebellion against Him. He is withholding judgment on us, and He put it on Christ in our stead. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, so that no one may boast. We can't take glory for our salvation. God saved us. We didn't save ourselves. It's His ultimate glory. So His act of awakening our dead hearts, His power to overcome our sin, His power to overcome death, His mercy, all point to the ultimate glory of our God and King, Jesus Christ. Christian, rejoice that Christ was crushed like Jericho was crushed. Christ was crushed that you may be rescued like Rahab was rescued, that you may experience the same mercy that she experienced. If he is not yet your God, if he is not yet your king, then call out to him today. Turn away from your sinful ways and trust that Jesus died for you, that he paid the penalty of your sin, that he defeated death for you, that God has placed, God has placed you in this room to hear of the victorious strategy to rescue you from God's eternal judgment for your sin. Turn and be saved today. Christian, when we consider the mighty fortress who is our God, when we remember that He is Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of armies, that Jesus Christ is on our side, how can we respond with anything else but obedience to Him? Israel walked around a city. Israel followed the instructions for how they were to, what order they were to be in as they marched around the city. Israel shouted when it was time to shout. They were silent, evidently, when it was time to be silent. 
simple tasks, understandable instructions, clear directions to follow. You see, obedience is part of, of, of genuine faith. What does God delight to honor? What does God delight to honor? Is it a profession of faith? Is it use of your spiritual gift? Is it your strong personality? No, no, no. First Samuel chapter 15, 22 tells us to obey is better than sacrifice. God delights in the obedience of his children. So are you obeying God, Christian? The call to love your neighbor as yourself. The call to honor your husband. The call to remember that your life is a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So don't waste your life. The call to flee youthful lusts. The call to not lay up treasures on this earth. The call to not judge your neighbor. The call to be kind to one another. To not let corrupt communication come out of our mouths. To set no wicked thing before our eyes. To love our wife as Christ has loved the church. Why? Why do we obey? Because it earns us favor with God? No. Because it's how we feel better about ourselves? No. Do we obey because that's how we, that's how we are a Christian? No. We obey because he has already given us a city. He has already won the battle. When faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure. Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. You see, Joshua chapter 6 tells us that there is victory in Jesus. A Savior did come from glory. He did give his life on Calvary to save a wretch like you. He did groan on a cross and shed his precious blood for your atoning. His cleansing power does reveal your healing. And yes, some sweet day we will join the angels in singing the old redemption story. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me. He bought me with his redeeming love. He loved me. He loved me before I ever even knew him. That's why all my love is due to him. He is Lord Sabaoth. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord of armies. Friends, I'm here to tell you on the authority of God's word that there is victory in Jesus. He alone has triumphed over our enemy in order that we may for all of eternity have promised rest. So claim the victory in Jesus. Live your Christian life in obedience to the Lord of hosts, the captain of of the Lord's army, the very one who was crushed beneath God's judgments in order to gain the victory and secure your promised rest. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.